0: Welcome to the United Voice Oklahoma podcast where we are practicing the art of kindness and civil discourse and authenticity and storytelling. Our goal is to foster a healthy dialogue about race relations in our community.
1: We seek common ground for common good and hope these conversations encourage you to build authentic relationships outside your race or comfort zone. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the United Voice Oklahoma podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the official launch of season two of United Voice Oklahoma podcast. It has been a number of months. I'm telling you, it's been too long, but we are glad to be back. Now, I know you heard my dear friend Cece Jones Davis in the intro, and that's because we just can't let her go. We just can't let her go. This is our way of holding on to her. Uh, but that's really only because uh, we have not yet recorded a new intro. Uh, but if you got excited and you got all pumped up to hear Cece, you can go back to season one to her farewell episode, and we can explain. She is away still doing her thing on the East Coast. She is no longer uh, a co host here on this podcast, and we will surely miss her. So go, go back to the, the previous episode and listen to that. It's still interesting, and just her voice alone is, just, is worth going back to listen to. But that brings us to the day, uh, and we are going to launch uh, into the season two in a very special way. I'm really excited about what you're going to hear today. We're, it's February, and we were launching at the end of February, so we have to do something uh, related to the Black History Month. And so here are two episodes to help us transition into our new uh, season. My friend, Mark Narence, who is always behind the scene, is always pushing the buttons and guiding us and helping us organize and do awesome. He's the producer of this great podcast. He's going to chat with me a little bit to kind of set up what you're about to hear uh, on these next two episodes. So uh, in the next uh, season. So Mark,
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you so
1: much for sitting in and you don't look anything like CC.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. We just, we won't post any video of this one, just, just voices, but yeah, it's, I've never been on here uh, via audio. Like you said, I've sat in the background for 37 episodes. So it's really awesome to hear all these conversations and chat with you just for a second today about, about where we're going. Um, so just, the plan moving forward right now, Wayland, as, as we've decided, is that as we're looking for a long-term host like the chair CC field, we are planning on kind of having, what do we call it, like a rotating chair of co-hosts? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. We're just going to kind of, there's so many great voices in Oklahoma and in Oklahoma City and so many different perspectives that we thought, uh, and it is a commitment to do it, so we thought we would rotate some of these cool voices and these influencers through the microphone.
0: Yeah, and so and so the plan is that starting here in a couple of weeks, we're going to start recording our first batch of episodes with our friend, um, Pastor John Middendorf at OKC First Church of the Nazarene. And he, so he will co-host with Wayland for a number of episodes. Then we have some other exciting people lined up after that. But we haven't gotten to recording those yet. We just had that massive snowstorm that closed everything down and still COVID and all that. So before we get to the new... Um, kind of flow, Waylon had the idea of, of highlighting this interview he recently did with his father. And so why don't you set that up a little bit, talk about how it happened. You can give the context of the what the Conversations with Cubit Facebook stream you do is and then why we have this, inter- this audio of this interview with your dad.
1: Yeah, that, that's good. So I started doing Conversations with Qubit back during my campaign only to, because I couldn't knock on doors because of COVID. So I went live on Facebook every week uh, to, to, to reach voters and to introduce myself to them and and to share uh, information and inspiration and encouragement and how I was. And that just kind of continues. I still, there's so many great people mm-hmm. that I, I like to sit down and just have conversations with, so conversations with Cubit. Well, then I, I was preparing to do one of those and looking for guests and figuring out who's the, and uh, I saw, me and my wife saw a show highlighting Jackie Robinson during Black History Month. And we've seen it many times before. But in this particular scene that we just ran across, Jackie Robinson was dealing with uh, some extreme racism. He was being called names. He was doing all that kind of stuff. And uh, and I we thought that was, man, he, fascinating guy. What a great, I'm glad we're celebrating him. And then the next day, my dad called, uh, unrelated to that, and he was telling me, uh, about his experience, his work experience and some of his best friends and one that had recently died. Uh, and to come find out this was a white man that worked for him uh, at, the, at his place of business. And I thought, dad, how did, you, how did you put up with that? That's the same thing that Jackie Robinson was putting up with, but we're, we're not celebrating my dad. Okay, I am, right. I'm celebrating him every single day. And, and we do black history uh, collectively in February, but I do black history every day. And I know these stories. He's told me several stories. And I said, you know what, dad, let me can I interview you just as it relates to your experience as a a black man leading our family And in he didn't want to do it. But I I told him, hey, hey, (laughs) you don't have a choice here. And so we got to document this for a family. we got to document this for your kids, your grandkids. And so he fell for it. And that's what you're about to hear.
0: And so um, I I love it. I'm a big fan of uh family interviews and documenting family history. And so had, just curious, had you ever done it before? Like not for a public audience, but even just like sat down and, and, and recorded him telling stories or?
1: Never, never, because you know these are very impromptu. He, he just goes in and he starts talking and telling these and I just, we just kind of talk. And so I collected in my mind over the years, uh, just I know a little bit about this story and a little bit about that story. But when I we sat down with him in, for this interview, he told some parts of the story I never heard before, mm-hmm. and and so it was it was really really interesting, and we was very intentional, and so, you know, hopefully everybody gonna see that it that you know for for those of us who are African American black, when we say we celebrate Black History 365, it's because, yes, Rosa Parks was the one that we celebrate, but my grandmother also had. Uh, a, a give your seat up moment. Mm-hmm. You no, know, my, my dad had some first, he was the first to do something, you know? And so in, in our family, we celebrate these people every day because we, we, we stand on their shoulders. And so it's 365 for us.
0: Right. I, I'm, I'm just, when you told me the other day that you did this, I was so glad to hear you, that you had, because I'm, I'm personally really passionate about documenting family history. And when yeah. people um, I've done it with my, uh, grandfather um, who passed away a few years ago and and my wife's grandfather and getting them on tape and a lot this is just my little soapbox a lot of people don't ever take the time to do it but then once those family members aren't around anymore you don't you don't have it if you never did it and so I, i encourage everybody to even if it's just with your iphone audio recorder to sit down and record your elders telling these stories and especially like you said um, these Black history stories, because as you told me and I listened, he has some really um, phenomenal insight to share and stuff. So, so we're going to jump into it in a second. And after, um, so, so what you're going to hear is the first half of Wayland's chat with his father. And then we, we kind of cut it off. And so we're going to make this two episodes. So next week, you'll hear the second, second half of it. So, uh, one more thing, Wayland. You you two, you two didn't give too much context, obviously, because he's your dad. But can you just tell me very basics, like uh, how how old he is, where he was born? Yeah,
1: yeah, you're right. So my father is 82 years old. He was born uh, in southeastern Oklahoma, yeah, in uh, uh, Broken Bow, Oklahoma. Okay. He had uh, oh gosh, I'm going to forget uh, a ton of brothers and sisters, but he was on the on the lower end of of his of his sibling group and he was raised by his great grandmother.
0: Okay.
1: And his great grandmother, and I think we talk a little bit about it. His great grandmother uh, was uh, raised in the Choctaw Nation. Right. So yep. she she was raised in the Choctaw Nation, went to a Choctaw school, was fluent in Choctaw uh, language. And so uh, that's he was there. He was the only little boy there. So he saw his brothers and sisters uh, at family gatherings and things like that. But he went to be with his grandma because she wanted somebody to be with her. Uh, and so that's the way he was raised. And so he was the first one to graduate from high school. Uh, and he moved here to Oklahoma City just after graduating high school to, to seek work. And we we'll talk a little bit about that in, the, in this interview.
0: Yes, absolutely. So I, I say we go ahead and dive right in. So the context, again, when, when what you're about to hear is he recorded this for the conversation with Cubit and we kind of repurposed it. And you dove right in just asking him to talk about, I think when he first realized he was, he was black or what, what that meant to be black in Oklahoma. Yeah, first and question. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, first question, I just hit him and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure, I, I wasn't ready for the answer, but yeah, it was pretty good.
0: So let's go ahead and dive into that and then we'll be back at the end to kind of just uh, wrap it up real quick. And so go ahead and enjoy this, this conversation with Wayland and, and his father.
1: This is a black history Conversations with Qubit. If you notice that if you follow me on Instagram, Twitter, if you follow me on Facebook, I haven't done a whole lot of posting any black history things. And, and partly because I feel like I'm doing Black History 365. And so I waited for the very last day of the month to do this conversation. It's because I want to talk to the number one Qubit uh, in my family. So today I'm going to have a conversation with the man that gave me life. That's right. And I am going to be talking to him about what it's like being the black or a black, not just a black man, but being black cubit. How he has shaped my life in Oklahoma, where he grew up and here in Oklahoma City, where he raised me is what was it like? Uh, creating the type of lifestyle that he created for me being black in Oklahoma. So, in other words, this is what I feel, is that we celebrate the, the Martin Luther Kings, we celebrate the big names, the Rosa Parks, the uh, uh, Jackie Robinsons. We, we celebrate all of those people and they've done a lot of fascinating things and they've certainly impacted our lives. We stand on their shoulders. But I stand on this man's shoulders. Uh, he, what he's done what he's overcome, what he's dealt with, how he's raised me, his perspective. When I hear some of the stories he's told me over the years, I'm going, this is black history, like this is black. So anyway, I want. no further ado, I want to introduce you all to my father, who's very busy, He's very busy. So here we go. Dad, you're on Conversations With Cubit, Say hello to my friends and
2: well, hello everybody. <laughs>
1: this is so. Uh, this is artist Cubit, and I'm lucky enough to have both my mom and dad uh, still alive. I still am able to have their wisdom and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so, Dad, I told you, uh, you've been talking to me. You share stories all the time about your life and your memory is Awesome! You got a great memory. You remember years, you remember dates, you do all this kind of stuff. But if you told me stories about the way you grew up in southeastern Oklahoma for years, and I would love to share many of those stories, but that's not the focus of, of today because those stories that you could tell me about growing up in Broken Bow, Oklahoma, those things actually shaped you and directed and impacted your way, the way you raised me and my sister. But today I want to, I want to honor and honor a black history. I want to try to stay focused on the stories related to our black history, like stuff that you've gone through. And so, being black cubit, being a black cubit in Oklahoma. Uh, for me, it's 365, right? So I wanna talk about some stories that you've, you've shared from time to time uh, about uh, your personal struggles, things that you've dealt with, things you've overcame, just how you shaped your perspective, right? And so can you remember, as a, as a, as a little boy or whenever it was, I'm interested and knowing when you realized uh, that you were black and that being black in Oklahoma had a specific kind of meaning in the world, do you even remember?
2: Well, uh, as, a, as a, a a young boy, <clears throat> we are, uh, we didn't use the word black. You had to use the word Negro. That you you know we was always taught that we were Negroes. And there's a difference between Negroes and white boys right. and girls. You didn't you didn't go out there and play with white boys, and white girls. We Why? Was, we, somehow or another, they felt like they were, they were, superior.
1: Now, when did you realize? Did you did you think that was the case, or did you always know that was not the case?
2: Uh, uh, I. I I often wondered why did they feel like they were better than we were. And our, our, our adult felt like that they had to go along with the program in order to get along. You know, you didn't talk back to a white man, you didn't tell him. you didn't call them a lie, you tell him, well, maybe you're mistaken. You didn't call him a lie. Right. That was, a, that was not, that was against the rule.
1: Right. did you see anybody that broke the rules
2: nobody when i when i was growing up nobody broke the rules everybody stayed in this place who taught who taught the rules Well, the uh, we were taught that in school you stay in your place you didn't you didn't complain about textbooks in schools you got what they sent to you in school the books they got the new books you got the books that they used so you but was, you were in, a,
1: but you were in the same school. You weren't in the same school with. We were, we
2: were, we were not in the same school. We were in the same school district. Mm-hmm. There were only one black school. Uh, there was only two black schools in McCurtain County, back then. Yeah, that was uh, Booker T. Washington, and Bell, and uh, uh, Donbar and Broken Bow.
1: And you went to Dunbar.
2: I went to Dunbar. Right. And uh, you didn't. The superintendent of the school was black, was white, he was a white man, he always was. We always got their hand-me-downs. Uh, football equipment, we got what the white boys, they got new stuff, we got their old stuff.
1: And it was that messaging, you 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 just knew that they were supposed to be treated superior but you never felt that they were superior. I, I
2: never felt inferior to them, but I felt I was uh, 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 you know, you stayed, you didn't, uh, you didn't buck the system, you didn't go up there and to the drugstore, and and you ordered a, you ordered a cherry coke, you sit up on the counter and ordered your cherry coke and they fixed fix it for you, uh, ice cream uh, cone, they fixed it for you, and you, walked out the door, you didn't say I don't care if nobody's sitting at the counter, you didn't sit down. You didn't sit down. You didn't sit down.
1: And that just blows my mind that you knew that it was just kind of an unwritten
2: it was it was the only thing you went to the bus station you went to the bus station and at the bus station they had blacks over here at, at, at a uh colored over here and white over here over there now i don't care i don't care if you got on if nobody was on the bus the bus was empty. You don't, you had to go back to the colored section, back in the back. That was for colored. And, and if the bus was full, if the bus was full of black people, and uh, there was no whites up there, you couldn't still couldn't sit up there. You had to stand up. Stand up. To stand up.
1: And that never made you angry. Never made you and mad. Never,
2: and never, you never got mad because that's the way the, that's the way it was at the time. You you had to accept it.
1: Right. Do you get, remember any outspoken friends of yours that wanted to buck the system at no, all?
2: No, none. The only time, the only time that I ever heard of uh, uh, anybody bucking the system is when they was had a bunch of black draftees going into the World War II, and and they they was going to put them at the back of the bus, but these young black men would not go for it. They set up in front because they were they were going to the army.
1: And, they, and no, they didn't get in trouble for it. They didn't get
2: in trouble for it.
1: But they, but they were on their way out.
2: They were on their way out. They yeah. were going to to the military and at the time of World War II was going on. And that was in the 40s. I was a little boy. I was a little boy that was in about 1943, 44. And I was a young, I was a little boy then. Six, seven years old. But I remember that.
1: Right, and and we won't we won't talk about you know you were raised by uh, your grandmother, my great grandmother, uh-huh. and, and as a little boy in a large family, uh, but you told me a story once about uh, black colored water fountains and white yeah, water. Yeah, fountains. you
2: had you had a you had a you had a water you had a water fountain that said black uh, colored. It was colored and white. They were side by side. But you couldn't drink out of that white water, but you, you could drink all the black water. You don't care if you, wanted to, if you wanted to go to a bathroom, and I don't care how bad you wanted to go, if they didn't have a, one that said color, you didn't go. You just held it. You just held it. Or you went out behind the building somewhere. <laughs> right, right. You went out behind the building somewhere, you just held it. If yeah. uh, uh, you wanted to, if you was hungry, and you had $1,000 in your pocket. You couldn't go across the street over there and eat. You had to go go in the back and order your food in the back and take it with you.
1: Right. And so you told me, you told me that you thought there was a difference between the, the water that came out, the white water. Well, throat. I wanted to
2: know how that white water tastes. Was it better than the water? That, I wanted to know how it tastes. But uh, even when I came to Oklahoma City, the only place, the only place a black person could get some food and sit down and eat was at the bus station. Downtown. Downtown at the Union bus station. But even at the time, uh, uh, they had a section for black people to sit, and you had they had a, they had a colored restrooms and they had colored and white water fountains there. Right. Down at Union Bus Station downtown on, right. on the, Grand and Walker.
1: Right. You told me this. You told me this before, uh, and I just kind of want you to kind of share the story or a part of the story or whatever comes to your mind when you when you think about it. But uh, you you said to me, son, can you imagine that we couldn't swim in the river?
2: Yeah, we would go to uh, Beaver's Bend, and we would we would have a, a school outing and we were spending in the, in in May that was a uh, just for school I we all go up there the whole school but then the, the white kids was up there too but we couldn't swim upstream from them we had to go downstream to swim and the, like you just couldn't do it that was every year every year you had to go you had to go downstream and there was really no no uh no lifeguard no nothing down there for up and up at the, uh, where the white folk swim. Yeah. They had, they had lifeguards and they had inner tubes and stuff like that that they would get out there in the water in and the river was, this the third clearest river in the world, Mountain Fork River. But we couldn't, we couldn't swim in it. We,
1: what did you think about it at the time and then in retrospect, what do you think about it? You know, I
2: thought about it at the time uh, that they was having so much fun and I, boy, well, would it, it would, I, I would love to do that. I love to go up there and swim. And then, uh, uh, you know, you couldn't, they would come back, you know, you would see them in the summertime. You would see them been up to Beavis Bend swimming and they had their swimming trunks hanging off the antenna of the car, stuff like that, where they'd been swimming. But we couldn't go up there during that time. Yeah, you could, we, couldn't, we couldn't go up to a state park and swim.
1: Wow, wow. Well, okay, so, uh, if, if when I remember, and I'm just moving along, and there's so many, you know, me and you've talked about these all the time, I mean, we, we, have, we talk every day, and you, you tell these kind of stories, so I'm just kind of cherry-picking some of the things that just kind of stand out in my mind, so don't be trapped by any of these, these questions, that I, but I remember, for as long as I can remember, I remember you being a reader, like you mm-hmm. always had a book, uh, going you always read the paper. Uh you always encouraged me to read, even though reading was a challenge for me. I didn't mm-hmm. really like reading until late late in life. But uh so I just assumed that you just was a guy that loved reading, but you also uh revealed to me later on that you really didn't fall in love with reading until you was an adult.
2: Yeah, you know, I was a I was an adult and then I found it Found out what reading was all about. It was a, uh, it was educational, and and I, I found out a lot about politics. I found a lot about humanity, and think, just from reading, and, uh, uh, and and reading was educational, and I always thought that well, uh, one of the reasons why we were treated the way we were because we were not educated. And that's one of the things that white men feel the most is educating black people. Mm-hmm. Once you get educated then you can you can talk on any subject, almost any subject. Uh, you can you can specialize in one particular thing. But I chose to to try to learn as much about everything. <laughs> right. I could, you know, and learn about politics and then it's then a it bothered me that they taught me a lot of that in school, but I didn't pay attention to it.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah,
2: it, I, I didn't pay attention to it. And uh, we were required to read, read books in school, but you know it was such a hard thing to, to read books. Being young, you don't, you, you don't have time.
1: Well, there wasn't any readers in your family.
2: No, there wasn't no readers in my family. Right. Well, I, I had a brother. I had a brother he was a reader but you know when he talked to us he talked to he was talking over our heads because of that way he had educated himself through reading right you, you know and and, and, I and your like, grandmother
1: and your grandmother we got we should mention she went to a she,
2: she, she went, went to a grandma went to a a Indian school they called it a they called it a black college, they called it college back then. And and uh and she taught for a while. And she spoke Choctaw fluently
1: mm-hmm. because
2: she went to a Choctaw school.
1: It was We We Lock I remember you telling Wheelock, me we Lock, we Lock Academy. Wheelock or Academy. Like mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, down in
2: there. Academy. Uh it's it's still there as a museum.
1: Right, right. But
2: it was Wheelock Academy and uh that's where she went to school.
1: This and she spoke
2: she spoke Choctaw fluently. She was a, uh, she was darker than you and I are. But her hair was straight.
1: Mm, yeah.
2: She, she she had straight hair. And she was she was a, uh, couple of shades darker than we are.
1: Right. But and she, so she wasn't reading at home. She didn't oh, provide she, books so for she you didn't, or nothing she like didn't that.
2: She didn't buy no books or nothing like that. That was something that, the only books you got, was the books that was at school. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a public library. We had a library at school, but we didn't have a public library.
1: Yeah. Uh And so you talked about really picking up reading and actually teaching yourself how to read read, better. How to read better. Mm -hmm. When you worked worked here in Nichols Hills. Tell me about Mm -hmm. that.
2: Yeah, when I worked in Nichols Hills, uh, I started to work there in 1958 uh, for a family named Townsend. He was a, a... uh, mechanical engineer, and she was a businesswoman. They had a they had a, a, a company that he was the uh, inventor of the what we see now and take for granted, of reflective highway marking.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the the way that it brights a little brighter yeah, than the, headlights is the
2: the, the 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 lines on the side of the lines on the. Highway in the middle line that when your lights hit it, it it brightens up. He invented that. He invented that that process of of a uh, uh, paint that would brighten up when the lights hit it.
1: Mm-hmm. And you were their driver, huh? And you were their driver. I was
2: their I was their driver. <clears throat> Not only did I drive, she taught me how to cook.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that. She taught
2: me how to cook and. And we uh, did a whole lot of different things for them. Right. But uh, that was one thing that I learned that was uh, educational to me. I learned how the rich live. There was a difference in how the rich live and how the people in the lower economic standard live. There, I didn't realize there was, there was food for the rich and there clothes for the rich. There's always, there's different, different food, the different quality of food. I didn't know that till I worked with them.
1: Really? Mm-hmm. And you said you, she, you, would drop, she would drop, you would drop her off or something like that and, and, and spend your time reading oh, yeah. or picking up books or something yeah, in their library was,
2: or something. When she was, she had, they had a library. They had a library at their house. They had all kinds of books in it. And I would take those books, take a book with me, and, well, while I'm waiting for her, I'll be reading the book yeah I'd read the book when I, while I'm waiting for her, and I'd be waiting for hours sometime, right. just, just sitting there at the car waiting for hours, I would have time to read the book.
1: <laughs> how'd you get that how'd you I can't imagine you walking around uh, Nichols Hills asking people for jobs? How'd you get that job?
2: Well, I got the job through the Oklahoma Employment Security Commission. Mm-hmm. They were located down there on on, the, on second and central. It's on the corner of Second and Central. That's what they had a had an office there, the Employment Commission. And what an were you doing there. before then? I was just getting to Oklahoma City.
1: You just I came got no, here. I came no, no job.
2: No job. I came to Oklahoma City in nineteen in uh, October of nineteen
1: fifty-eight. At
2: nineteen. At, uh, at nineteen years old. Right. And I got a job. I went down there and put in my application, job, and they they uh, sent me out to a house for an interview. I had to catch the bus, they had, at that time, they had the Nickers Hills bus. It, you went out there, you went downtown to the bus station, you caught that Nickers Hills bus and you they dropped you off at whatever address you wanted to in Knickers Hills,
1: oh, and they
2: ran all day,
1: uh-huh. but
2: they didn't run at night. Yeah. And uh, I would, uh, I'd ride that, catch that bus, I'd, I'd walk downtown every morning. To catch that bus to go to work.
1: Right. And how long of a how long of a walk was it?
2: How long of a walk? I I lived on a on a seventh seventh and Gary, and I walked down to Grand and and Walker to the bus station. Right. Right. Every day. Now on Saturday evening when they didn't have a bus coming, didn't have a bus running on Saturday evening, I had to work on Saturday. I'd walk from Nickers Hills.
1: Right. To this was, so this was and how long did you work for them?
2: I worked for them seven years.
1: Right, because I remember, I remember you telling a story uh, about Martin Luther King, a conversation you had with the with your boss, the female, the lady. Yeah,
2: Miss Townsend. Miss Townsend uh,
1: and Martin mm-hmm. Luther King.
2: Yeah, we had a uh, a conversation about him, and she said that he was an agitator. And I told her, I said, you know what? I said if. Uh, we didn't have somebody like him to tell us for, for, that we were being treated wrong, we would never know the difference. I say, he is one that, that telling us that we have the same right to life, and liberty, and pursuit of happiness as you have. <clears throat> the Constitution guarantees us that. But then we have <clears throat> people who know the law, but they are not gonna, they're gonna pass law to nullify part of the Constitution that that pertained to us and to all the U.S. citizens.
1: Right, what, did she, what was her attitude towards her you atti- after explaining?
2: Her, her attitude sort of changed. Now, back then, they were all Democrats. Yeah. Everybody in Oklahoma was a Democrat. We didn't have not one Republican holding statewide office, none whatsoever. Uh, Robert S. Kerr, who was Senator Robert S. Kerr? At the time, he was a uh, uh, he would come to that, They was friends of the Kerrs, and, and Robert S. Kerr would come to the house and eat dinner. Uh, I knew him, and uh, but they were all against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. They were against it. Why were they against it? They they saw the writing on the wall. They saw that, that they were not gonna have anybody to look down their noses at, to wash their clothes, uh, to scrub their floors, and stuff like that. See, back in those days, son, they built. Every house was built. They had servants' quarters along, built along with it. Mm-hmm. The house they lived in was a 21-room house. They had servants' quarters up over the garage. They built a new home, a new house, and they built a servant's quarter. That's where I live. That's where I was living when I married your mama. Mm. They,
1: you, you got so you—they trusted you so much that they moved you. You didn't have to walk to the bus station. No,
2: I, I lived at the house they built them. Wow! I had my own phone, and I had a car, and uh, uh, I could go. I access to the to the house, I could do whatever I wanted to do at the house. Uh my my room was off up over the garage. I had two rooms, the bedroom, a living room, and a bathroom. No kitchen.
1: No kitchen. But no you just kitchen. left, you just ate well, I could
2: use the kitchen down there. Right. I could go down there anytime, day or night. Right. And I had my I had my own telephone, uh because uh, she would she needed me, she'd call me. Was, the there,
1: was this a unique, were you just lucky and had like, some uh, really nice people to work for that would happen to be white? Or was your experience common?
2: Well, uh, you know, you know, there was, uh, there was a lot of people, a lot of, most of the white people in Nicklaus Hills had black servants. Matter of fact, practically all of them had black servants. Some lived in and some didn't. At first, he, uh, they had a maid that lived in. When they lived in Nick, they lived in uh, uh on Hillcrest, I didn't live there. I drove back and forth. To, I, I came in and out every day. Now they had a maid named Edna. She lived there. Mm-hmm. She raised her son there. They sent him to college. Really? They sent him to college. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. and he he went into the after he got out of college. He went into the military, and he was a uh, well, oh, he was, when I was there, he was a captain in the military, and he retired from military. Black, black. Black, yeah, she sent him to college.
1: Right, so she she obviously believed that there was something to the rights, but she still thought uh-huh. Martin Luther King was agitating the situation.
2: Yeah, yeah. she thought, thought Martin Luther King was an agitator, causing a problem, and uh, uh, at one time, she and I, we was down in Albany, Georgia, Vacation in Albany, Georgia.
1: You went with, you took him on vacation? I took him,
2: I took him. I took her.
1: Driving. Driving.
2: We was in Albany, Albany, Georgia, and Dr. Martin Luther King was in town that weekend. And uh, he was staying at the same hotel that I stayed at. Mm. And uh, and, uh, the police was patrolling the street with shotguns. We all stayed at the same hotel
1: that's because blacks stayed at that hotel black, uh, no 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 but everybody no, black
2: black didn't stay at that hotel only certain they let certain people stay there oh, okay now i stayed there because i was a chauffeur
1: okay so she I arranged a for friend. you a, your accommodation. Uh-huh. she arranged
2: my accommodation right uh, at one time that we went when we left Oklahoma city we were going through a uh, uh, down south and we st- stayed at the, uh, Holiday Inn. Well, she had made a reservation for me at the Holiday Inn, and she was she was staying with there with the CEO of Manhattan construction company at that time. That's where she was gonna stay, and I went on up there to check into the hotel, and they wouldn't let me do it. Uh-huh. They wouldn't let me do it because they said uh, they don't they don't uh, let blacks stay at that hotel. It was how, a it was a Holiday Inn.
1: How did you take it?
2: Oh, I, I just got on the phone and I called her and told her that, that they say I couldn't stay here. And uh, uh the gentleman that she was uh, was a uh, staying with, he got on the phone and said, Let me speak to the manager. Mm-hmm. And uh, the manager told him to notice that so we don't uh, don't accommodate Blake. He said, Well I tell you what, if he can't stay there I can't do no more business with you, because I have people in there all the time that stay at that hotel and have a lot of meetings at that hotel. And if he can't stay there, then I'm, I'm cutting ties with Holiday Inn. I'm never going to have any more business with y'all. They, met, they let me stay there. Hmm. Yeah. Stay there for three nights. Right. Down in Little Rock, Arkansas.
1: That whole trip down through the south, in in those times we're talking about early sixties.
2: Yeah, early sixties. Early sixties. Well this this was a this was in nineteen mm-hmm. This was in nineteen sixty-four.
1: Right. The, and uh, the Civil Rights Act thing. The Civil we have Rights a whole Act, lot of discussion about that. The Civil that going Rights on.
2: Act had just been signed by, by Johnson. Mm-hmm. The Civil Rights Act just been signed by Johnson. And nobody wanted to abide by it. In order for in order for Johnson to get people to accept the Civil Rights Act, which they said that you cannot change attitudes with the law, right? Now, and you know, and I agree with that. You can't change attitudes. It's going to take a while to change attitudes. So when I went to work after 1964, I came back to Oklahoma City. Uh, I, I came back to Oklahoma City, and I decided. Well, I wanted to quit doing domestic type work. I wanted to do something that I wanted to contribute to building this country.
1: And that was your that was your thought.
2: That's my thought. I couldn't uh I couldn't do it waiting on somebody, you know. I couldn't do it being a domestic employee. I had to I had to get a work in a factory. I wanted to work in a factory where we making something, or doing some building something. Something that everybody uses uh, uh, will use some way or another. So I applied, I, I got them in the newspaper. I went to a uh, uh, looked up a job in the paper, and it's, this was through a uh, employment agency. It was through an employment agency, Our, uh, I called them. They arranged for I went down there and filled out an application, and they uh, arranged for me to have an uh, interview out at Demco. At the time, Demco was a, a was a had to hire some black people in order to keep. They was a subcontractor for General Dynamics. General Dynamics was a, was a was the, uh, was building the U.S. Navy's Polaris submarine? And Demco was producing valves for that Polaris submarine. They were a subcontractor, mm-hmm. and under that, under the Civil Rights Law, that there c- couldn't be no discrimination or unemployment. At, that went for all everybody, but especially for those who were subcontractors of the United States government. In order for them to maintain their contract, they had to hire some black people. Yeah. So they hired a they hired a young lady uh, named Carolyn Gould in the in the uh, uh, accounting department.
1: You know, I remember Carolyn Good because th- didn't she have a son that went to Millwood? Uh huh. Boopah. Re- yeah, it was really good in football. Mm-hmm. Great.
2: Greg, yep. <laughs> That's right. That's what yep, right yep, I remember. Yep, right, yep. Right. I didn't
1: realize that y'all, I didn't realize that relationship was uh-huh. at Demco. Uh-huh. Yeah.
2: Then they hired me to work out in the plant. I was the only black person in the plant. Uh, uh, I, 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 you know, I was, you know, nobody would talk to me enough. but I went on did my job like I supposed to every day. And then uh, the plant, the uh, plant uh, superintendent. He come in there and he told him. He told him I work with two other white guys. He said I want y'all to teach him how to do what y'all are doing. I said I want him to. I want him to teach. I want y'all to teach him to do what y'all are doing, and I want you rotating. You do this one week. He do it one week, and then he do it one week. And I finally. I finally got to learn how to do that. But then once I What was
1: their out, attitude about attitude, teaching you?
2: Their attitude was, hey, look, uh, uh, I don't have to do it. I don't have to train them to take my job away from me. But that was enough for everybody. You know, I didn't take their job. It made their job easier by adding a third person in there.
1: Right, right. It made their job easier. But they were resistant to it. Oh,
2: they were resistant to it. And then I.
1: But you never ever talk about, at least, at least today, I mean to date, you never talked about those white people sabotaging your job or trying to make it harder for you or anything, or did you just ignore it?
2: I ignored it. I'd hear them, I'd hear them using racial slurs and stuff like that, but I ignored it. Why should I get mad? I'd let them know that they was getting under my skin.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I didn't I'd pretend I didn't even hear it.
1: Right, which is, which is which is baffling Dad, because at least to me and to and to my sister and the whole family, you are outspoken like you don't hold your tongue you tell people what you think what you feel and to think that you're holding it in well,
2: why well they they i didn't hold I didn't hold it in out there i was I was outspoken and what and and and, and what what I said what I was saying they respected my, my attitude because what I was saying, they knew it was right. I wasn't saying something that was wrong. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to buck their system. I was just saying that what I thought was right and they rewarded me for my outspokenness. Mm-hmm. I was rewarded. I was uh, I was, uh, uh, was promoted. From from a, a, a regular employee to a supervisor, right. and there was other people who were qualified. That was qualified, and uh, uh, but I was more qualified than those who applied for the job.
1: Right. So one of the things that you um, you've told me growing up, uh, and I love to hear you, you, how you how you how you came about with this this philosophy. But you told me. Uh, son, you need to work twice as hard to get half as much. You know, you do. As the as the white man. Is that where did you get that from? Well, was I, that I, the I, attitude you took I, to Demco? My
2: attitude was at Demco. That I was if, if I was gonna be successful, I have to work twice as hard as they did. The other guys did. Instead of instead of coming in at coming in at seven o'clock in the morning, I would come in sometime at five in the morning. And I would instead of leaving at three thirty, I leave at five in the evening, because I didn't get paid by the hour. I got paid a salary, and you know, and my boss told me that that uh, you're paid to do a job, whatever it takes to get the job done. That's what we expect you to do.
1: Right. Uh-huh. And but but you thought that was that just your work ethic as as a my, man, or was that? A, because I'm a black man working in a white camp. Well, no, Which one is it? My
2: work is, my, 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 I felt like this, that I, uh, I, I always have to make an example for my employees. Never ask them to do something that I wouldn't do. Ask them to come to work when the snow was on the ground if I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I never missed, even though I got paid, I never missed.
1: Right, I know, yeah. <laughs> I,
2: I, I never missed, and the Lord blessed me to be healthy, you know, where I didn't have to take off sick or mm-hmm. anything like that. But when my kids got sick or something like that and needed to take them to the doctor and did to go to school, I was able to go up to the school with you and be be there when y'all needed me.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. the uh, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and then I want to talk about two two people that you work with at, at Demco. But uh, talk to me about going back to your early years in Oklahoma City. Talk to me about what you thought about our police department, the one that I work for now, the police, then your relationship with the police any you run it in with the police uh, and, and how race might have played a factor in the way you you engage with police around here. OK, that was part one with the conversation with my dad, artist Cubitt, the uh, the most influential person in my life. I'm hoping you enjoyed that. But what would you think, Mark?
0: Yeah, I mean, it- first of all, it's always really cool to hear like where your background came from. And um, obviously, it's your dad. So your guys voices are kind of similar. It's kind (laughs) of neat to hear that. But um, so next week, we'll listen more of the question you were just starting to ask him about his relationship growing up with law enforcement, with obviously impacted probably your view of law enforcement. But as you're thinking back on what we just heard, what were kind of your takeaways when you're interviewing him about Uh, the man he was and how that brought you up to be the man you are.
1: Yeah. First of all, that work ethic uh, is something that, that he passed along to me and he, and I was really curious about, you know, how is it that he never ever brought home any animosity centered on race uh, when, when it's all this evidence that he could have. And, and he was very, uh, specific and to letting me know that, you know, his boss was really tough on him, but he was tough on everybody. And uh, And his boss gave him an opportunity, not a handout. Uh, and he just had to work hard and prove himself. And he was constantly proving himself. But, uh, and that's all he wanted was an opportunity. And, and because he had so many friends that were white, they gave him a fair shot. And that's all he wanted was a fair shot. In spite of all of these other things, uh, those, those people uh, created a, a sense of safety in him that says, I'm not going to raise my kids to just judge people based on their color. I want them to get an opportunity to have a relationship with them. Uh, and so I think i carry that into my relationships. Uh, I have very diverse relationships and I don't judge people uh, on anything. And and so I, I like the fact that he, he created that kind of life for me. I don't know how he got that that built into his character but i'm glad he passed it on
0: do you remember um as a child a teenager young man like do you remember any specific ways that he did pass that along or was it kind of just more well subliminally, you know, like in
1: i think it was it was really clear in our our my next-door neighbor was my next-door neighbors was a white family and he embraced my friendship with that kid. He let me go with him. They, we, we embraced him. We were like little brothers mm-hmm. when we grew up. Uh, and so uh, I, I can't say I didn't see color, but there was no difference in the way we were treated on our block and uh, in our families. And we ate together. Now, looking back, there was a lot of difference in the, the way we ate and, uh, and some right. of the practices and, and, and you know, some of the traditions. It was very different, but we we were treated the same. Okay. So. Yeah.
0: And then, yeah, it's, it's, it's just uh, incredible how the things that the environment you were raised around impacts what you become. <laughs> and what now, you now
1: here, here's, is, here's is the thing that I want that, that really, that, that I have to point out is that that man, that, that, that white man that, that was my dad's boss that set it all up for him to get that promotion put uh you know, he talked about what a significant salary increase that was for him and it put a uh, it changed the whole trajectory of the life he was able to provide for his kids. And so I always refer to myself, man, I didn't I didn't have that type of lifestyle that a lot of my relatives did. So I was looked at as the black lever to beaver. Okay, right. And, that, and that's not just because, only because of my dad's hard work, but it's also because uh, a white man gave him opportunity. A white man said, here, sink or swim. You're You should be able to do this job just like anybody else. Come do it
0: but it, but it wasn't a handout. It wasn't a, it, was it wasn't a handout equal opportunity. Handout.
1: Right. He learned all the jobs. He did all he, this thing. He could, he had the high school diploma. He had the credentials and he was given the opportunity. He wasn't blocked out because of his race.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, uh, thank you for like being opening up a father son conversation for the, the world and our listeners to hear. So thanks again, Waylon for having your dad on and thank you everyone for listening this week.
1: It was great. So as always, seeking common ground for the common good. This is Waylon Cubitt and my friend Mark Marantz, and this is United Voice Oklahoma podcast, and we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the United Voice Oklahoma podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you like what you heard, please take time to leave us a review and share it with your friends and family. It really does help us to get these conversations out to more people.
1: This podcast is a production of United Voice Oklahoma, one of the initiatives of the Stronger Together movement, and is produced by OKC Good and Reese Black. For more stories promoting a healthy relationship on race in Oklahoma, follow United Voice Oklahoma on Facebook, or visit unitedvoiceok.org.